going to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. The last couple messages from Ephesians have been in these, well, these three pairs of relationships we have in Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. Each of these is addressed as a faulty or broken relationship that in Christ is fixed or brought back to the whole that it can be and should be. We know that relationships are distorted by sin and fall. Paul spends a fair bit of time here in these uh, chapters working on how we uh, do these relationships in light of that. And I think I had mentioned this maybe before we got into these three pairs um, earlier, that we just have have a striking example of how Christianity, how, how true Christianity is built around individual transformation. Um, We can look at these relationships in Ephesians 5 and 6 and um, just I'm reminded again of how Paul didn't uh, didn't try to socially or um, systematize fix. He said the true fix starts inside true transformation. And of course, we have slaves and masters in today's lesson. And um, Paul didn't come out and say slavery is evil and now let's rid the world of it. And maybe you have wondered, well, why not? Um, And we do bring some mental images of slavery that are very unpleasant. The history of slavery is pretty atrocious in the land we live in. We'll we'll look a little bit at the context Paul was speaking into in a moment, but it is important to note that here we have just another example of the Christian knowing and showing that true transformation is personal and flows out. Um, Just more evidence that a forced, externalized change is limited. Not that there's never value in them, but... We just have that common thread through through Christianity of if you really want things to improve, if you really want change, it has to be transformation in each individual. All right, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. That will be our focus this morning. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants <clears throat> excuse me, of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We have the word masters 
um, there in verse 5, we could say lords there. So the word that's used in verse 5, um, kurios, is the same word we have in verse Verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord. That's the same word. Um, so it makes sense then that in verse 5 we have according to the flesh, because, well, there's another kind of Lord. He's making the differentiation um, between our lowercase l lords, we don't use that term much anymore, and the uppercase Lord. So he's saying, be obedient to those who are your uh, fleshly lords, masters. Um, and then in verse 7, he calls us to the uppercase L, Lord, as the reason for our faithfulness. Uh, Paul uses according to the flesh. I was struck as I was reading through here that you know, we've seen that a lot in Ephesians. Uh, from what I could tell, it's about 20 times in his letters that Paul talks According to the flesh, uh, Paul points us to that natural level quite a bit. And here he says, you obey your lords, the one at the natural level, as you obey Christ, your Lord, above. Verse 8, he also points out that Jesus is the one who does that final judging, that final reckoning, the final balancing of the books. Um, and in verse 9, he pushes earthly lords to model their lordship on the lordship of Jesus. So there were slaves and lords in the church. Slavery was built into the fabric of the uh, first century Roman culture um, when Christ came into the world and households uh, were built around slaves. And so you can you can imagine what you can start to imagine what Paul faced um, as the gospel spread, slaves were converted, masters were converted, some in the same house, some not. And um, certain challenges arose from that. And I'll just note here that we aren't in a place and era of slavery for which I'm thankful. Um, we do have somewhat of an analog of masters and slaves in that we have leaders and followers, employers and employees, foremen and crew members. And so there are lessons for us in this, but I don't want to just gloss over um, the slavery piece. Um, well, I want to, but I don't know that I should. There we go. Um, I was just struck as I read this that generally I jump straight to the well, employees and employers piece, and, and maybe I should actually consider um, the, the tangled uh, tension that was there, uh, especially in, in the early church. Paul has been dealing with households here. Um, he's talked about marriage, husbands and wives. He's talked about children and parents. And uh, in a way, this is an extension of that in, in to, for the first people who, who heard this. Uh, their households, a lot of them would have built around slaves and masters. And it's the situation Paul addressed was was not like slavery in American history. Um, it was complex. It was massive in scope. 
Uh, American slavery was primarily racial and lifelong. And in Paul's day, it was not racial, and it wasn't even always lifelong. Um, there were some similarities, yes, but it was different. I did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole reading about some of that early Roman, um, first century Roman mm-hmm. environment. Um, one estimate I ran across was that there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, uh, about one-third of the people in a city like Ephesus uh, would have likely been slaves. And it was an accepted part of that uh, Mediterranean world's economic life. One uh, historian I, uh, a quote from one historian I read across, read was, um, in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was so much a part of life that hardly anyone thought about whether it might be illegitimate probably some lessons for us in there about some things that are just so big a part of our lives that we never stop to consider their legitimacy. Anyway, not the point. Um, It was also interesting to read that a lot of the slaves in that time, they didn't just do the the menial work, they did nearly all the work, um, including management, oversight, and a lot of the professions. In fact, a lot of slaves, or not a lot, um, a number of slaves, some slaves are even more educated than their owners because they had to be to be able to do their jobs. Um, In that environment, they could own property. Uh, Slaves could even own slaves. Um, They were allowed to save money. They could buy freedom. Um, And so it was was just a different situation than we're used to thinking about. Um, One historical item I ran across was that in the time Paul would have written this, a lot of slaves would have been gaining freedom by age 30. Um, If you want an interesting book about ancient Rome, you can read uh, Lionel Casson's book, Everyday Life in Ancient Rome. And he talked about, um, yes, there were some pretty horrible situations for some slaves, and he also talked about white-collar slaves clerks, cashiers, bookkeepers, um, and how uh, banks were often owned by wealthy Greek or Roman families, but the officers who were in charge of them, who made them work, were a mix of slaves and freemen. And uh, and the reaching to obtain freedom was, was a pretty big motivation for how a lot of slaves worked. They worked well because that uh, made it more likely that they would obtain freedom. Just one other note on slaves. Uh, Felix, the one, the governor who became famous for throwing Paul into prison, um, history indicates that he started as a slave and uh, he rose pretty high. So Paul, Paul was talking into a situation that we can we can pull lessons from it, but I think it's dangerous for us to project just a one-to-one of our understanding of slavery and, and the history of what we're used to thinking about. And it's a little dangerous maybe to just gloss over and uh, say, well, it's just employees and masters. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about our slavery to Christ then in a moment. Now, all that said, I don't feel like the message of weight this morning is to convince you slavery is wrong. I don't 
think we have anybody here who's in that camp um, thinking that slavery is just something we need to be doing or get into, or even that Bible says slavery is a good thing. Um, and if you want some simple verses about to, to look at uh, that question through, uh, Luke 10, 27, uh, we're called to love our neighbor, not own our neighbor. Um, the uh, Matthew 7, 12 um, is where we have what we call the golden rule, treating others the way we want to be treated. And I know we read accounts of slave masters who um, maybe did fairly well at that. Um, but I think that also gives us a pretty good picture of of why slavery did not stay long in among Christians. And also, there, it was fascinating for me to note that Paul in First Timothy, First uh, Timothy one, where he's giving a list of you know, bad things, he calls out uh, men stealers. It says in the King James or kidnappers in New King James, and that is a word that's used only once in the New Testament. And it is enslavers. Anyway, so Paul didn't really have a high opinion of slave masters. Anyway, or at least not slave traders, that's for sure. Anyway, our focus this morning is not on abolitionism. Um, We do need to find ourselves in this passage. We need to learn and we need to practice what we learn. So, in a practical way, none of you are slaves um, in, in the physical world. So let's consider our small L lords, our small L masters, our earthly masters. Um, All of us have those at some level. And we have some pretty straightforward lessons in these verses. In verse 5, we see that we are to obey our lords as we obey the Lord Christ. Servants, be obedient to those who are your masters as to Christ. Verse 6, we have serve your lords as service to Christ. And um, we also have the idea there of, um, in verse 7, having, having the attitude in service that you have when serving Christ. I'm sorry, I got a little distracted. I, I get a little annoyed by the be obedient. It feels a little too passive. Um, obey feels like a little stronger command. Um, be obedient feels like it's something that maybe just happens. Well, you just be obedient. Um, obey is, is maybe got a little more force behind it. Same thing, but um, maybe it'll help us to, to read that sometimes as bond servants obey those who are your masters. <clears throat> There's no passiveness to this. In verse 9, we start to see the the shared Lord, that the master and the servant share one Lord above. Um, Slaves obey their earthly Lord as a Lord, not the Lord, because now they see the Lord above. And earthly Lords can see that they are not at the top of the food chain. I want to think a little bit about the slavery to Christ. We use that term sometimes that we are a slave of Christ. Paul has used that term. We can look in 1 Corinthians 6 um, to start to get a picture of our slavery to Christ and what that means. 
1 Corinthians 6, we'll read verses 19 and 20. This, well, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every Christian is Christ's slave. One, we were bought by him. Two, we are owned by him. And three, we exist for him. So, every Christian is Christ's slave. We were bought by him. We are owned by him. And we exist for him. In 1 Corinthians 7, we won't turn there uh, for the sake of time. Uh, Paul also talks about uh, slaves and being called, uh, each one remaining in the same calling as he was called. And he was talking to slaves there. Were, were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, use it. Um, he who is called in the Lord while he is a slave is the Lord's. Uh, he who is called while free is the Lord's slave. You're bought at a price. He also says don't become slaves of men. There's a whole, uh, whole sermon over there. So maybe, maybe we have four things there. Every Christian is Christ's slaves. We were bought by him. We are owned by him. We exist for him. But maybe the fourth thing is we are both slave and free. That's something Paul says a lot. I really wonder what a believing slave owner, when he first heard this from Paul written to the Corinthians, would have, would have thought, how that would have struck him. Because this really is tearing at the core of traditional slavery, who can serve two masters. Um, we read in Ephesians 1, 7, we were bought with, uh, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Acts 20, 28, um, we read that we were, he purchased us with his own blood. And in Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the price was high. What were we purchased from? Revelation 1 tells us about that. Revelation 1, we read about what we were purchased from. Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Washed from our sins in his own blood. We were liberated from sin and everything that goes with it. Romans 6.22 says, Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. So back in Ephesians 6, we are slaves of God, we are slaves of Christ, and from that stance, from that understanding, then we look at how we serve our earthly masters, the lowercase l lords that we have in our lives. I wondered a little bit, verse 5, um, 
where it says, Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. And I was wondering, well, does that mean I'm supposed to fear my boss? Um, probably not. It makes sense that it would follow what we read back in chapter 5, verse 21, where we are told, uh, as we submit to one another, in the fear of God. We're, pointing, we're being pointed back to the fear of God. And the parallel passage in Colossians 3 would um, also highlight it as a fear of God. Colossians 3.22, Paul says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. We read the fearing and trembling uh, phrase Paul uses over in Philippians also when he says, um, while he's gone, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and that God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So, fearing and trembling God. Again, we could have a whole message about fearing God and what that means. I'll just read Isaiah 66, verse 2. I put that in my notes. Um, as we think about trembling in fear of God, God says this, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. This trembling we have is not the terror of looking at um, a vengeful God. It's not the terror of looking at a, a whimsical God that you don't know what he's going to do next. Um, here we have the picture of those whose, whose heart is turned toward God, empty of self and selfishness, trembling at his word. God is looking to work in their life for good. We see some specifics of obedience in these, these verses when it comes to how we obey our masters. Uh, we have sincerity of heart. We have not doing it for show or attention or for reputation, eye service and men pleasers. Um, we, have, we have the idea of doing the will of God from the soul, serving with a good will. It's coming from the inner man. So when you serve your earthly master or masters, have your heart and soul in it. Do it full-willed. Do it good-willed. The, the idea of eye service is external. It's about, well, make sure I look right doing it. Make sure that... Um, I don't remember where I read it, but I remember it has stuck with me for a long time, running across a phrase in a book one time where somebody said, Jesus is coming, look busy. That's eye service. That's, uh, oh, Josiah is not here, so maybe I shouldn't pick on him. Yeah, that'd be if Josiah made sure that he uh, really had that press cranking when Steve came back into the building. Um, or, yeah, there are a lot of illustrations you could use there. For eye service, um, oh, the boss comes through at 10.30 every day, so that's when I make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm really up to my ears in work. Um, that's eye service. That's external. And Paul, again, calls us to that inner life. He doesn't focus... 
He gives us none of the externals in this passage. Um, he doesn't always do that. He, he often mixes them. He doesn't say, make sure you aren't wasteful. You know, these are, these are servants and slaves who are drawing water from a river and hauling it up to the house. And, and he's not saying, well, make sure you're not wasteful. He's not saying, well, make sure you measure carefully and true when you're trading grain for your master or, or all those things that, that he could have highlighted. Um, he just drills right here down to your inner man and your heart and your motivations because from that, not because, but also, from that will flow accuracy. It will, uh, from that will flow carefulness. Um, the servant who has their heart... Um, that serving from from a goodwill, serving as to Christ, is going to be careful when they're hauling that water. They are going to be accurate when they're measuring out that grain. Um, Paul drills down to to that inner man and your heart and your motivations. Um, Paul really is, in essence, giving this instruction. He's saying, be real. Whatever your duty, whatever that, that outward activity is, this lesson then cuts deep be real don't be a hypocrite do life from the heart you serve from the heart he he makes it plain that we serve really wanting to bless really wanting to bless our our earthly masters and and as i read that i I really started to wonder um So we'll get into it a little bit, but there's a mix of not just you're your serving the Lord, but but a specific you serve your master as unto the Lord. You serve with that same burden and, and drive. So it's not just remember you're serving God, so do it right, but there is still a focus on the one you are serving here, locally, your your earthly master. And And we have the idea there of, I'm really supposed to want to bless my earthly master. And and I wondered then, well, what if what if this master is not worthy of this level of heart, soul, and will that Paul is calling us to? Now, I like and respect my boss. I have a good boss. But even then, isn't this a little too lofty to serve him, I mean, that way? And there are plenty of people who face the experience in this life of having a boss that it's hard to say I have a good boss. Well, no matter what, you can be real and sincere and you can truly want to work to bless in part because on the other side of the little L Lord is the capital L Lord. We see that in these verses. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, we've read these a number of times as we've been looking in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works in verse 10 there is is pretty big, but it's big enough to encompass the work you do tomorrow. And Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, 
and that you put on the new man which was creating according to created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you serve your little L lords, your earthly masters, from that foundation? That you're a new creature created unto good works to live and serve in true righteousness and holiness. In verse 8, back in chapter 6, knowing that whatever good thing anyone does, you could read that as, because you know, because you know that whatever good thing anyone does, he will receive the same. So Paul seems to be giving, he seems to be um, saying, knowing this is going to help you get over that hump of resentment maybe when you get no appreciation or recognition or reward on earth for your earthly obedience. You're obeying your earthly master and you're doing things well and you're putting your heart into it and you're serving in sincerity and nobody notices. You don't get an acknowledgement maybe sometimes that um, we'll get to the masters later and how you uh, lead well. But... um, when you're serving and you don't get an acknowledgement that you're doing well, you don't get an acknowledgement that it, that there's appreciation. Um, Paul seems to be giving a little bit of a um, a salve here um, to help you when when you would be tempted toward resentment for that, because he points to if you do anything good, so any tiny little benefit even for your earthly master, there's a reward for that. Paul says, and so. Verse 8 is a motivation to servants, to slaves. Um, he's, he's already said that, that obedience consists essentially from action from your heart, that it's not about doing it for uh, to be seen. It's not about doing it for eye service, for, for man-pleasing. And here he seems to be, to be giving a little salve to, the, to our humanity, maybe, that we remember there is reward even when we don't see it now. Plenty of people do admirable things from poisoned motives. Um, Paul ruled that out for us, pointing Christians that that the pure inner man is the foundation of of how we live. Um, And when you live from the heart like that, there's no guarantee your master is going to see it or notice it. Um, But the Lord sees it, and he will reward. We could talk quite a bit about reward um, but we won't. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 that we've read, um, you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for them. Um, we aren't earning salvation, but we are working for God. Maybe sometime we'll, we'll look at reward, or maybe later you all want to have a conversation about are there differing rewards in heaven. Anyway, in verse 8 we we have kind of a bridge from from the slave to master transition the reward for doing right is true for slave or free so um, there are a lot of people here who fit into both categories you are serving an earthly master of some sort and you are serving as an earthly master of some sort. 
So some of you that may just be as an employee and as a parent. Um, maybe, uh, let's see, we've got a school teacher here, got a couple school teachers here. Um, so they serve under the board, but they're serving over those children. Um, they're, the, you know, y'all get to, to learn double here. Um, a lot of us find ourselves in that position. I'm an employee, but I'm a supervisor. And so I need to be learning how to relate both directions. And Paul in verse 8 here kind of starts to bridge that. Um, and one of the things is there's a reward for doing right, whichever side of that equation you're on. Paul gives then instruction, specific instruction for the lords, for the masters. And he says, do the same things. Um, So that means as someone who is an earthly master, you are to serve from a pure inner man. You are to obey Christ. You are to be sincere. You're not to lead for eye service or as a people pleaser. You're to lead with goodwill. So Paul is basically saying, I laid down these guidelines for service, and the principles apply to you as well. Ceasing threatening was one that wasn't that, that's new in, in this verse. And I wasn't sure what all to think of that, because what's a threat anyway? Um, so if an employee uh, keeps showing up for work um, an hour after his shift starts um, if his earthly master says if this doesn't stop you might as well not come in at all anymore um, that sounds like a threat right No, it's a statement of fact. Well, threats are generally statements of fact about consequence. Um, And so I I wonder, does that mean, what does this mean? How does this this work for for a godly master? Cease your threatening. And and I started to notice, um, to think back through how both Paul and his writings and then go back to the teachings of Christ, a lot of statements of consequence, you could say, well, that's a threat. But I was, I was struck with how statements of consequence, how threats in in Scripture are are dripping with mercy. It's about how to come through it well. Um, it's not about crushing. It's about here's how you can get to where you need to be and the consequence that will happen if you don't. And so I think a lesson for me is when I do have to lay out a hard truth for someone I supervise, um, do I have a merciful disposition as I lay out those hard truths? You share a Lord in heaven. Um... You and your boss, if you're both Christians, you share a Lord in heaven. If you are a boss and um, don't ever forget that you, Mr. Lowercase L, Lord, have a Lord. And it's the same Lord. And he is above. He is the God above. 
There's no partiality. The rich man doesn't get preference, nor does the poor man for that matter. Um, well, I'll, I'll pick on Steve and Josiah again. Um, Josiah didn't get the job of running the press because uh, he has red hair, and so, well, obviously he has to be the one to run it because he has red hair. Um, that's partiality, right? Just picking some arbitrary thing and saying, well, because of this, that. Reuben doesn't run the new press because, well, he has blonde hair and, you know, that's just how it has to be, or he has blue eyes, or. Um, that's partiality. God doesn't have it. We can't have it. Um, God doesn't make his decisions based on those types of things, and neither should we. I want to close just thinking about work a little bit. Work is a gift from God. Work existed before the fall, by the way. Um, work didn't come with the curse. Sweat came with the curse. Um, work is a gift from God, and we should be thankful for work. But I will admit some jobs are not high on the desirability scale. Um, on one level, you could say you work because people pay you. And to some level, that's true. Um, no one that I know of has an addiction to cleaning septic, system, uh, septic systems or, um, you know, scraping out uh, horse barns or cow barns or cleaning out poultry litter. Um, I don't really know of anybody who does that just because they can't help themselves. Um, it's because it's something that needs to be done. And often people will pay others to do undesirable tasks. Um, but something greater than money needs to motivate us. And, and this passage shows us that we do need to see Christ as the ultimate boss for whom we labor. Yes, we have we have um, instruction and motivation for serving our masters um, for their good in order to serve them sincerely. We also need to remember we need to see that Christ is the ultimate boss for whom we labor. So so even even if your job is unpleasant. Um, even if you've got a bad boss, you can you can transfer masters without transferring jobs. And I don't mean that you're you're never going to change jobs, um, that you're stuck in whatever you have for now. Um, but if you remember, if you grasp that important fact that your master is the Lord Jesus. That makes a difference. And Paul teaches us here that the lordship of Christ should affect our view of, of how we work. Um, and, and you can exalt Christ through your various jobs. Paid jobs, unpaid jobs, awful jobs, wonderful jobs. That is an opportunity you have. When we pray the Lord's Prayer... 
we should remember how God normally provides bread. Through farmers, transporters, retailers. God's not dropping manna the way he did for um, children of Israel. Um, he's not dropping um, bread or Krispy Kremes or whatever down from heaven that you just walk out and gather it in the morning. Every part of our economy's food chain is part of the way that God is choosing to provide for us. And and I think a lot of people don't see much or maybe even any connection between their faith and their work. And now I realize I'm talking to people, a whole bunch of you work for a Christian organization, and, and so you know, that you know that your work's connected to your faith, right? Um, you might not know that tomorrow at, you know, at 2.45 when something's not cooperating. But um, a lot of people just don't see a connection between their faith and their job. But whatever you do as a Christian are you not supposed to do it as a servant of Christ for the glory of Christ? Let's never lose sight of this. The most important thing in this life is not whether you work in a sawmill or an office or whether your office has uh, a keyboard or a steering wheel. Um, What truly matters is how you respond to Jesus Christ. So, If you're going to answer one question today, answer this one. Is Jesus your master? God bless you.